You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. growing up, uh, I had the uncomfortable question posed to me by my parents or by teachers or principals or other peoples in positions of authority over me, ask me the, 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 the vital question, Chris, just what do you think you're doing? Uh, this was never a serious question that required an immediate answer because this is what we would call a, a rhetorical question. Uh, the answer was obvious. Uh, a rhetorical question is, of course, a, the uh, question that assumes the obvious answer, and that was definitely one of them. That never stopped me from giving uh, an answer anyway. Um, it was usually one of two. Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. It was a, was a famous one. Uh, the other one would, uh, or just as likely, it would be a sheepish nothing. I'm not doing anything. What are you talking about? Both, uh, both answers, of course, were untruthful. I always knew exactly what I was doing, and doing nothing is nonsense, of course. But as you get older, it's much rare to hear the question, uh, what do you think you're doing? But more often, when you've done something you shouldn't have, the question may morph into something closer to just who do you think you are? This is one uh, generally safe for those who have possibly overstepped their perceived role and responsibility or authority. It too is generally a rhetorical question, but every once in a while, the tables are turned. I don't know if you've seen the reality show Undercover Boss. Anyone seen Undercover Boss? It's a show, it's a reality show, I use that term very loosely, who knows anymore. Uh, what's real and what's not, but it's a reality show that follows a corporate, uh, a corporate executive disguised as an entry-level worker. See, the premise of the show is that the corporate executive sees firsthand the inner workings of the company from the perspective of the front lines. Sometimes the boss is happy with the results and it's a feel-good story. The, the uh, middle manager is uh, rewarded with a raise or something else, uh, but every once in a while the boss is not happy and I've seen those and I don't know why I enjoy them when, when I see jerk bosses getting their comeuppance, but, but I've seen this. Being disguised when the executive has had enough of the lack of character of the local manager or the incompetence or what have you, uh, the executive would begin saying and doing things more in line with their actual position of authority which of course leads to mass confusion on the part of the manager. Just who do you think you are? And then of course, the manager, uh, whereupon the executive, uh, reveals themselves. It's all quite entertaining, really. Uh, this week we have a similar kind of situation. We have John saying and doing things that appear to be beyond the scope of his authority. And of course, those in authority are quite concerned. So with that, let's go to the text. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 1, we are going to cover verses 19 to 28 today. Verses 19 to 28. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, 
Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and, uh, and, and have an opportunity to sing our praises to you, to pray to you, to read your word, to listen, and listen carefully, that we may uh, take away what you would have us to learn. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and soften our hearts that we may understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Verse 19 takes the reader from the prologue. You remember the last two sermons was the prologue, the introduction and outline of what to expect in the entire book. And we now enter the first week of Christ's ministry. Verses 19 to 28 is day one of Christ's ministry. And it begins with John the Baptist. Jesus' ministry begins with the testimony of John. While I believe the thrust of the text isn't necessarily focused upon uh, the concept of testimony, I do think it's important to mention. You've heard me, if you've heard me uh, preach before, you know that I've beat this drum to death over and over again, so I don't want to belabor the point. But you'll notice that John the Baptist, or baptizer to be more specific, in his testimony uses, lo and behold, words. The very term testimony is one that expresses or communicates about something or someone. We often hear this term in regards to a courthouse when we hear testimony. Someone is giving their version or understanding of events or persons involved with the case at hand. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a testimony in a courtroom, even on TV, where it might be uh, a little more dramatic. I've never seen it done with charades, where you're trying to guess through actions, right? No one acts out their testimony. We do live according to our true testimony, but to give a testimony demands clear verbal or written communication. As Christians, we are called to give a testimony. But all too often, our testimonies are about us. One of the failings of modern-day evangelicalism is the promotion of giving a testimony. But all too often, the testimony doesn't point to Christ. But often, when we give our testimony, we often point to ourselves. Maybe we point to our joy. Maybe we point to our peace or whatever it is. I used to be addicted to pornography, but now I'm not. That's my testimony, right? 
There's nothing wrong with pointing out the freedom that we have found in Christ, but Christ must, absolutely must, be the basis, the foundation of our testimony. We are to testify about Christ. It's about Him. And lastly, on this brief point, Peter makes it crystal clear that it is every Christian's job to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are to be prepared to share Jesus and his good news with anyone and everyone. Are you prepared to do that? Do you know what to tell the unbeliever when the opportunity presents itself? If someone were to ask you right now, what do I need to do to be saved? Why must I come to Christ? What is going on? What's this Christianity about? Would you know what to say? If you don't, and many of us at times are caught off guard, we don't. You should think about this in order to be prepared for those times when you do have something to say. For me, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I'll say it out loud, just as a reminder. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the gospel. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. And then, because I'm on that track, I can then explain it. That's what I do. Right? You guys do whatever you want, but you should have something in mind for when that happens. Now, much ink has been spilt with regards to who constitutes the Jews. Right? Throughout John's gospel, he uses the term the Jews. In fact, many have asserted that the apostle John was anti-Semitic, which is, of course, ridiculous. However, I do think that John, when you uh, look throughout John's gospel, you will see that John does use uh, this term in different contexts. He uses them some positively, such as salvation is found through the Jews, right? That's a positive thing. Uh, some negatively and some neutral uh, throughout his gospel. Uh, this particular usage in verse 19, I think is best understood in the more negative sense. John uses the term often to indicate those in leadership, meaning the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, etc., that ultimately rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And this is one of those cases. We must keep in mind that Jews were the first converts to Christ, that the early church was made up of Jewish believers. No person has any excuse to treat the Jews poorly. Anti-Semitism is a sin. goes without saying. Or at least it should. So the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites to grill John the Baptist. Why priests and Levites? The role of the priests and Levites during the Old, Test uh, the Old Testament dispensation was that of temple police. Uh, they were practitioners of various temple worship activities. Uh, they were what we might call the proverbial experts of purif uh, in purification rites. Uh, they would be the ones best suited to see for themselves exactly what John the Baptist was doing and be able to ask him appropriate questions. Such as, who are you? We'll get to that in a minute. The Apostle John includes a couple details here that I think are important. If you look down to verse, I said 29, is that right? No, I meant 28. When you look down to verse 28, John indicates that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Why is that significant? 
Well, first and foremost, we need to recognize that this is not the Bethany. There were a few Bethanies back then. This is not the Bethany located at the base of the Mount of Olives, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. If that were the case, the Sanhedrin would have likely just wandered over and had a look for themselves what was going on. Secondly, we don't have a definitive location for this Bethany. Uh, there are some indications that there were two more Bethanies on the east side of the Jordan River, one north by the Sea of Galilee and the other straight east of Jerusalem. But either way, uh, it's not an insignificant distance for those walking. Most importantly, however, is that this Bethany is located on the east side of the Jordan. What that means is it's not in Israel. This is in Gentile territory. Um, this may be understood as the first outreach to the Gentile nations. It was on the border, of course, the Jordan being the border. And an obvious call to Israel to ready themselves, but we're going to get to that as well. We need to keep in mind that the gospel is to go out to all the nations, all tribes, all tongues. The gospel is worthy to be declared to all of creation, and God in his providence has given us the glorious task of being an integral part of his plans. John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, according to Jesus himself, in Luke 7, verse 28, began his prophetic ministry in the land of the Gentiles. This hardly seems insignificant. The priest and the Levites ask a pointed question. Who are you? Why would they walk for up to four days, depending on where this Bethany is, they'd walk up to four days, to ask this question. Who are you? Why didn't John come up out of the water and extend his hand and say, Hi, I'm John. What's your names? Is it because John understood the question to be more akin to just who do you think you are? I think it depends on how we order things. Either way, it's fascinating. Or at least I think it's fascinating. Let's review the situation. Rumor has spread all the way to Jerusalem to the highest religious authorities in all of Israel, that there is a man, and this man is dressed in old-school weird clothing, and he's doing and saying some strange things. In fact, we know that the people from Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas in Judea are heading out to this Bethany across the Jordan to see this guy. The people of Israel haven't heard a peep from God in over 400 years. I want you to imagine that for a second. 400 years. That works out to about 10 generations. We're fortunate if we can remember people three generations from ourselves. Maybe we have some fading glimpse of our great-grandparents. 10 generations or 400 years is a very long time. Interestingly enough, it's about the same time I found this fascinating. Interestingly enough, it's about the same time allotted by God to the Ammonites and the Jebusites who were heaping up wrath in their iniquities before being overthrown by the Israelites. A judgment of God upon the iniquities of a wicked people. I just found that fascinating. The leadership is concerned enough to send a delegation to a dirty and Gentile land of unclean people to find out what's going on. Upon arrival, what do these religious police and experts see? 
Matthew's Gospel gives us an even more detailed account in some regards. So if you want to follow me over to Matthew's Gospel for just a minute, turn to Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoke, or sorry, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will, be, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, for the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Could you say that John the Baptist maybe was a little fired up? <clears throat> Just imagine, there's this crazy person calling all those who hear to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is baptizing them, ritually cleansing them of sin. Who are you? Just imagine, John. Well, I'm glad you asked. And then he let them have it. You brood of vipers. Now, maybe that doesn't sound all that bad to our ears today, but imagine the public humiliation these gentlemen would have experienced. Having this strangely dressed man who ate nothing but grasshoppers dipped in honey, dressing them down in such a disrespectful manner. It's one thing to be dressed down by a person in authority over us. I'm sure we've all had that unpleasant experience. But maybe even more annoyingly, we've, we've been dressed down by someone who we consider equals. It's a little more humiliating. But to be dressed down by a poor homeless man who is clearly out of his mind... Well, that's something entirely different, isn't it? Maybe another way of looking at it is that John saw them coming. He knew who they were. And before they could ask any questions, he let them have it. We could then look at the question of who are you as being more of a curiosity. Uh, they would have seen his outfit, heard his message, and his blistering attack on them, combined with his cl uh, uh, cleansing ritual of baptism, and come to the conclusion that something of significant was going on. Maybe he wasn't so crazy after all. Then John says, he confessed, speaking of John the Baptist. He confessed, 
and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In verse 20. Now regardless of which narrative we take, we come to the same place. John the Baptist understood the point of the question, so he answered appropriately. It's interesting here that the Apostle John uses the term confessed, not once, but twice. He's emphasizing something of importance here. He is declaring loudly and clearly for all to hear, I am not the Christ. Now why would anyone confuse this strange man with the coming of the Messiah? First off, he was cleansing via baptism. He was cleansing Jews. Jews didn't believe they needed to be ritually cleansed, being the people of God. They were already children of Abraham, as we, as we read over in Matthew's account. Uh, they were the clean and righteous ones in their own religious systems, in their, in their own minds. They were the clean ones. It's the Gentiles that are the unwashed, right? Second, John the Baptist is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of heaven. This is what the people of Israel have been waiting for, for 400 years. It's great timing, too. The Romans were starting to be a real pain in their behind. Israel wanted them out. Might he be the Messiah? The one they were waiting for? After all, he was acting the part of a religious authority. He looked the part of an Old Testament prophet. He was proclaiming the kingdom. Was he the Messiah? They were eagerly awaiting for one. He had... A significant following, as Kevin covered last week. John's disciples lasted into the second century. It's too bad they put more stock into John the Baptist than the person rather than John the Baptist's message. How can you be so close to the truth of things yet miss it? It's easy to pick on them until you remember Judas and then the rest of the apostles. We can often look back to the history of Israel and the early church in the New Testament and be judgmental of them. If we do that, we're showing our own blindness and stupidity. We miss the point when we do that. We're no better than the Old Testament saints or even the New Testament saints that we read about. We are just as prone to wander and get things wrong as anyone else. We are to read these accounts and learn to be humble and learn that but by the grace of God go I. So John says emphatically, I am not the Messiah. Okay, so if you're not the Messiah, well, what about Elijah? And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now why would they ask that? The last time Israel heard from God was the prophet Malachi, who prophesied in the fourth chapter, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Here we have John, dressed as, an, as, as a prophet of old, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seems like a reasonable question, doesn't it? Maybe he's Elijah. If he's not the Messiah, is he Elijah? The one promised to come before the Lord. And what was his answer? He said, I am not. Here's a situation that causes some angst with Christians and seems to provide bullets for the non-Christian. How is it that John clearly, and John clearly denies that he is Elijah when Jesus himself declares 
that he is Elijah. We can find that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, 17, uh, 12. You'll also find it in Luke and Mark. Jesus declares that John the Baptist is Elijah. But Elijah here says, I am not. Let's first understand that the priests and the Levites weren't idiots. Neither was John. When God promised to send Elijah as the forerunner to the coming of the Lord, there are at least two ways that we can look at it, two ways we can understand it. God has the power and authority to actually send Elijah, who lived 900 years previously, back to Israel in order to fulfill the promise. God can do that. He's amazing that way. So when they asked John, are you Elijah? They meant, are you actually the real Elijah? And this is where John could have said back, no, my, my name's John. The other way to understand the coming of Elijah would have been a more symbolic understanding of that promise, that God would send someone in the spirit of Elijah, someone who would play the part, so to speak. I believe most of the time, uh, I believe most people at the time of Christ would have understood the promise to be the former one, the actual coming of Elijah the prophet, the real one, that Elijah himself would reappear. And it was perfectly accurate and truthful for John to deny that he was, uh, that he was Elijah. He was not. His name's John. It's also perfectly accurate and truthful for Jesus to identify him as such. It seems to be a habit of biblical believers, even up to our day, to misunderstand God's word and intent. After all, they got the intent of the coming Messiah wrong, didn't they? Uh, why would they not misunderstand his forerunner in John? Interestingly enough, you won't find anywhere in the Bible where John the Baptist seems to make the connection of his ministry with that of the promised coming of Elijah. John never clues in that he's Elijah, as far as we know. Jesus certainly did, but John himself seems to have, uh, let's just say, underestimated the importance of his own ministry. After denying that he was the Messiah, and now Elijah, the Levites now move on to the last option that makes any sort of sense to them. And that would be the question of whether or not John was the prophet are you the prophet? He answered, no. Strike three. You're out. To what prophet were these gentlemen referring? If you would follow me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, uh, we'll get a better understanding of what they were getting at. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There were different interpretations of who this prophet was at the time. In fact, the Samaritans, you know, those half-breed, unwashed, heretical neighbors to the north of Israel, 
they actually had what I would view the correct understanding of who this was to be. They believed this was referring specifically to the Messiah. The priests and Levites obviously didn't hold to that interpretation because they had already asked John if he was the Messiah. And he already said no. They were awaiting this new prophet like Moses. But so far, none like Moses had appeared. John denies being this prophet. Well, this line of questioning has run its course. They now have nowhere to go, so they just cut right to the chase in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, we can see the hierarchy here. These are the priests and the Levites. They're experts in all things religious, but they have people to answer to. And they can't go back without an answer. John has created too much of a stir in Judea, and the non-answer isn't going to cut it. Give an account of yourself. Who are you, and what do you think you're doing? Well, John gives them an answer, one that they would or should recognize from Holy Scripture when he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And just in case they missed the reference, John gives it to them as the prophet Isaiah said. Now this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. In Isaiah's context, he is declaring that before the coming of the Messiah, God would send a messenger who would call for a metaphorical improvement to the road system of the desert to the east. To make straight means to level the land. It means to knock down the hills. It means to fill up the valleys. It means straighten the curves in the road. Do whatever you have to do in order to make ready the arrival of the king. This obviously is no small task. This is no minor project. This is big and important business. Again, Isaiah was speaking metaphorically. This leads us nicely into the answer for the priests and Levites' final question of the day. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet just who do you think you are the Pharisees were sticklers for the law they had laws in place to prevent the people from even approaching breaking the law they built proverbial hedges a hundred yards from the hedge of God if God, let me give you an example. If God allowed you to take a hundred steps to the east, the Pharisees would be the guys that would pass the laws that you couldn't take more than 50 steps. Because they didn't want you getting close to a hundred. They didn't want to tempt you. It was all for your own good, see? We're adding all these laws just to make sure you don't get too close to the law of God. And if you read in your Bible, which I'm sure you do, you would know what Jesus thought about the Pharisees and their added yoke upon the people. John, in this instance, is both acting outside of his authority and purview according to the law of the Pharisees. First, John wasn't a priest or a Levite. He had no right to be doing anything in a religious capacity. Who does he think he is? 
He wasn't above the Pharisees. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't the prophet. So what are you doing? You're breaking the law. That's the accusation. Secondly, John was doing baptism all wrong. For starters, you don't baptize Jews. Jews were already ritually clean, as I've already said, being the people of God and all. They had no need for ritual cleaning. They had no reason to repent. They were the people of Abraham, don't you know? And furthermore, the baptism of purification was strictly for Gentiles. You know, the unclean ones. On top of even that, John, you're doing it wrong. You don't get in the water with the dirty Gentile. They baptize themselves. You're not doing anything right. See, this is why we can't have nice things. Right? The priests and Levites were incensed at what they were witnessing. Kind of like Baptists who witness Presbyterian sprinkling babies, but I digress. Uh, they wanted an answer. What do you think you're doing? John gives them an answer. What am I doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There. Take that back to your bosses. See how they like that answer. Verses 26 and 27. John was the beginning of getting that road straightened. He was calling for repentance and faith for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was at hand. How close was it? The Messiah was here, standing amongst the people, unrecognized, but they were about to know him. There was no time to lose, no time for soft language, no time for tickling ears. The chosen one was here. The kingdom was at hand, and the people were not ready. Jesus was to follow the runner, the one carrying the latest news. He was here, entering the gates. And who was he? Not just any king, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords. John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets, according to Jesus. Yet John, when comparing himself to Jesus, was lower than the lowest of slaves. The lowest slave in any home would have had the unfortunate job of bending low to untie his master's sandals. I don't know what your feet smell like when you wear sandals, but mine are awful. And it was the job of the lowest of the low. Their job was to bend over and untie the sandals of the master. According to John, he was not even worthy to do that for Jesus. This king was a big deal. He was the biggest deal. And the people were not ready. So let me wrap this up. There was lots to cover today, but there really is only one recurring theme throughout John's gospel. Every story, every word is written that we may believe that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through him. The Apostle John's 
first example of this is John the Baptist proclaiming the coming of Christ. He called the people to repentance and faith, both Jew and Gentile. He didn't use his ministry to bring attention to himself, but to bring attention to Christ. Everything is about Christ. So, a couple of things to ponder for this week. Jesus has promised to return. I'm sure you've heard that. Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. Simple question for you. Are you ready? Have you repented? Have you put your faith in Christ? If not, what are you waiting for? He calls all people to repentance and faith from every tribe, from every tongue and every nation. This means you. If you don't know Christ, I beg you, don't harden your heart, but consider these things. He has promised eternal life to those that put their faith and trust in Him. In him. Folks, He's worthy. He is worthy. Secondly, John the Baptist had a powerful ministry. One that even he may not have fully understood. Throughout his ministry, as powerful as it was, he pointed to Christ. It wasn't about him. It was about Christ. As Christians, it is important to understand that we have all been called into the ministry. This idea of, and we hear it all the time, well, I've been called into the ministry, meaning I'm going to stand up and preach or I'm going to be a pastor of some kind. This is patently wrong. There is no one that has been called into the service of Christ but is not in the ministry. If you are a Christian, we're all in the ministry. The problem we can often find ourselves in is the same as that of the Pharisees. We forget that it's not about us, but it's all about Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. You might find this ironic. I preach. But I preach not to my own glory, but I preach to his glory, to his everlasting glory. I preach Christ and him crucified. And if at any point I begin making sermons about myself, about how wonderful I am, or about how smart I am, you'd know something's wrong. Uh, but you know I've lost the script. If I stop pointing to Christ and I start pointing to me, I've lost the script. It's not about me. It's about Christ. What about those that aren't preaching? So my question to you is, where is it that Christ has put you? Whether that be at work, or school, or married, a parent, a child, whatever, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. Are you living your life to the glory of God? Or are you living your life to the glory of yourself? Sanctification is the act of becoming more like Christ. This is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Be more like Christ. That you would be more like His Son. If you live for Christ in all of life, you will become more like Him. If you live for yourself, if you live according to your desires, you will wander from the path that leads to righteousness. Repent and make straight the way of the Lord. And for everyone, I leave you with this. 
Who are you? Who are you? And what do you think you're doing? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you for the questions. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and courage to act accordingly to the question of who are we? We are the body of Christ. We are believers. We are the sheep of his fold. And you have given us uh, works, good works to do. And Lord, I pray that we would do them, including sharing the gospel. In your precious name we pray. Amen.